thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Running. Absolute genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is discovery is questions. Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine with me, James Titko. Coming up this week, a new rapid way to tell heart failure from a chest infection just with a sample of breath the molecular scissors dismantling the virus which causes COVID, and we hear if there are any signs of life on Mars. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. A new way to diagnose certain diseases by analysing a patient's exhaled breath has been demonstrated by UK researchers. As he explains to Chris Smith, Plymouth University's Michael Wilde and his colleagues have identified unique combinations of chemicals that are produced in different amounts by different diseases and are released from the lungs alongside the air we breathe out. So if you analyse the composition of that air and measure those chemicals, you can identify the underlying medical problem, even if the patient has more than one thing wrong with them at the time. At the moment, it's at the proof-of-concept stage, but the hope is that the technology could be shrunk to provide a rapid diagnostic system that could screen patients at the hospital doors or even in their own homes. More than one in eight of all emergency admissions to a hospital are patients presenting with acute breathlessness. And currently, the diagnostic markers used to identify the underlying diseases are blood tests and radiological procedures such as x-rays. And they have poor discriminatory power in patients with different presentations and also uh, delays in blood sample processing and triage. Because a, a person could be breathless because they have a chest infection, they could also have heart failure. They could have both. Exactly. Despite the same presenting symptom, the underlying causes of acute breathlessness are highly varied and patients presenting with that symptom will have different uh, disease progressions and treatment options. And you think you can improve on what we've already got? Yes. So the scope of the study was to develop a new non-invasive method based on breath analysis. And the advantage of breath tests over, say, a blood test, for instance, is not only for those of us who don't like needles, because it's non-invasive, it allows for repeated and frequent measurements. Um, So breath is much more readily available than blood. And uh, this minimizes the risk of the patient and allows us to monitor those markers of disease a lot quicker. How does it work then? We know the main constituents of air are carbon dioxide, oxygen, nitrogen, and so most of us would expect exhaled breath to also comprise of slightly altered composition of these uh, main gases. However, it might be surprising to hear that alongside these respiratory gases, our breath also contains hundreds, if not thousands, of chemicals uh, known as volatile compounds. These volatile compounds are coming from complex chemical reactions happening inside our body, 
And when we have a disease or a certain condition, this can uh, disturb the levels of these small chemicals in our blood, which then partition to our breath. And so if we can detect these volatile chemicals in breath, we can use them in the non-invasive diagnosis and prognosis of different diseases. So different diseases would be represented by a different fingerprint, as it were, of changes in what would be the normal levels of a cluster or constellation of those chemicals. Precisely, yes. And if you can detect what's changed and by how much, you've got a way of effectively putting your finger on what the diagnosis is just from sniffing what the person's breath smells like. Yeah, precisely. Does it work? Is it any good? Uh, It worked very well. Um, So we were able to identify breath chemicals that differentiate acute cardiorespiratory exacerbations and the underlying disease subgroups. So uh, we were able to measure and detect about 805 different volatile chemicals across uh, 277 patients. We identified a set of of these chemicals that were able to differentiate acute breathlessness. And then within that set of chemicals, we also identified smaller subsets, which were able to uh, diagnose acute asthma, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, known as COPD, community-acquired pneumonia, and acute heart failure. How did you find these things in the first place? Because if we envisage an enormous chemical haystack, which is all of the chemicals in the human body, many of which are going to come out in the breath. How did you find the, the needles in that haystack that are representative of those different diseases, which are the really sensitive and specific ones that point the finger reliably at the underlying condition each time? So that's where I come in as an analytical chemist. To trap the volatile chemicals in breath, we need to uh, pass the breath through a small tube containing a sorbent material. So you can think of these tubes as a chemical sponge or a filter. We can send those tubes back to the lab and use an advanced analytical technique called gas chromatography. It's a bit of a mouthful, but most people will have performed chromatography at school when you place an ink dot on a piece of paper and then run water up the paper. It separates the ink into the different colored pigments. Using this technique, we are able to visualize the separation of hundreds of these volatile chemicals. So we effectively have a molecular lens through which we're able to take a chemical photograph to see the chemicals present in your breath. Now, obviously, you have at your disposal a very good analytical laboratory to do this kind of thing. An A&E department doesn't. So is the idea that having found those needles in the biochemical haystack, you now say, well, we will make small shrunken tests that just are very good on a small scale at finding those particular molecules, and that will give us a test? Precisely. So in the first instance, we've demonstrated how breath biomarker platforms and how these non-invasive breath tests uh, can be used in an acute care setting. But in the future, now we have an understanding of what these molecules are, what we need to look for, we can start to think about translating these breath signatures, these chemicals onto portable sensors. And then I think most of us could readily envisage in the future a sensor built into a wearable technology or your phone, for instance, and you have a constant health status uh, fed back based on the volatile uh, chemicals that you're emitting from your body. Michael Wilde, and that exciting study just came out in the journal Science Translational Medicine. Precision molecular scissors that can operate inside our cells to selectively target and dismantle the genetic material of the COVID-19 virus have been developed by researchers at the University of Cambridge. Dubbed XNAzymes, 
The scissors are themselves built from short pieces of an artificial genetic material called XNA. This folds into specific shapes that can recognise and target for cutting only the genetic sequences of viruses rather than any of the healthy genetic material that's meant to be in a cell. And by building sets of these molecular scissors that are effectively multi-bladed, they can be programmed to make cuts in the viral genetic material at several locations. So even if the virus adapts or mutates in one of the cut sites, it will still be disabled by cuts made elsewhere. Alex Taylor from the Cambridge Institute of Therapeutic Immunology and Infectious Disease, CITID, is here to explain how they've done this. Thanks for coming in, Alex. What do these molecular scissors exactly look like? How big are they? If you imagine a double helix, like you'd sort of get with a short piece of DNA, sort of peeled apart into its two separate strands, one of those strands by itself, you know, can fold up into really a variety of different shapes. But in our case, the strings of nucleotides are made from these artificial building blocks. That's what makes them exonazymes. They're strings of just sort of 35 or so of these. So that makes them about sort of 10 nanometers long. Just to sort of put that in context, it means you could sort of fit about five to 10,000 of these things across the width of a human hair. We know what the sequence of XNA uh, that you need to sort of fold up into an active enzyme, but we actually don't know yet what the sort of catalytic core of these things looks like. Um, but they, we know they have a sort of catalytic core with a kind of couple of uh, sort of binding arm sequences next to these that recognize the RNA. And in the study, as you say, we sort of took three of these XNAzymes, these molecular scissors, and engineered, engineered them to sort of fold up into kind of pyramid-like structures, so a bit more like a sort of three-bladed blender. How do you get them physically into the cells for them to then do their work? Well, so, so for us, it's very early days. We, we're just trying to understand whether and establish whether these things can actually have their kind of catalytic activity inside cells. So at the moment, we've just been using this technique uh, called electroporation. So this is where we give cells a, a little electric shock, and that sort of opens up temporary sort of holes in the surface of the cell and allows the exonazymes in. This isn't really a technique that we could use in a sort of realistic clinical setting. So in the future, we want to explore sort of linking exonazymes to things like the sort of fatty droplets, as you know, as the, this is the kind of technology that was used as for the, the Pfizer and Moderna RNA vaccines. But actually, other researchers have shown that um, in the case of things like lung cells, it might be possible to sort of just inhale short oligos into the lungs uh, in a fine mist and get them taken up into cells without having to rely on things like lipid nanoparticles. And how effective have they proven to be in, uh, in what you're trying to achieve with them? So far, we started off by sort of uh, just in the test tube, taking sort of short sections of the viral genome of, of SARS-2 um, and sort of linking these to kind of glowing dyes that allows us to kind of track the sort of the size of these RNA target molecules. And to start with, we were able to sort of, and it was part of the, part of the exciting aspect of this technology, is that we could rapidly generate a series of the dexinazymes really just within a couple of days of the genome coming out. Um, and sort of test whether they worked on these shorter fragments. Um, and once we'd done that, we moved over to using the full RNA genome of the virus extracted from infected cells, tested them sort of with conditions that kind of mimic the inside of the cell. And again, once we saw that it was cutting, I was able to team up with a sort of virology lab in, in my department uh, who have a sort of safety level three lab. And we sort of challenged cells with kind of live virus. Uh, and, and we found that, um, you know, indeed, once the cells have, have the exonizymes in them, they're able to sort of inhibit the replication of the virus. And just finally, Alex, could this technology be used for other diseases or recurrent infections? 
Absolutely. So at the moment, we're sort of uh, really, we're really only targeting RNA based viruses. Um, but this includes, you know, some of the biggest kind of emerging threats that we, we, we sort of face over the last few decades. So things like Ebola, uh, Zika, influenza, this kind of thing. So we, um, we, we certainly think that we should be able, you know, we're, we're looking at sort of targeting some of these kinds of viruses. Um, and really, uh, RNA viruses are really the kind of the, the big sort of scary group in, in sort of, it's about 40, 40 to 50 percent of emerging human infectious diseases are RNA-based viruses. So um, at the moment, that's, that's where we're, we're sort of putting our attention. Sounds very promising. Alex Taylor, thank you very much. And that paper was just published in Nature Communications. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. Still to come here on The Naked Scientist, how music we can't even hear can affect our desire to dance. But first, to Mars and a treasure trove of information from the Mars rover Perseverance, which has just been published. Perseverance landed spectacularly in Mars's Jezero crater in February of 2021, with the mission of surveying the nearby area for signs of life or at least signs that life may have been once supported. Images from space showed that the Jezero crater contained what used to be a river delta. So where better to start the hunt for extraterrestrials than a place that was once probably full of water? The rover has been gathering data ever since, and this week a collection of papers were published documenting the initial findings. Planetary geologist David Rothery from the Open University took Will Tingle through what's been discovered so far. We're pretty sure that Mars has had some fairly extreme changes of climate. and There would have been times in Mars's deep past when there could have been a flourishing biosphere, certainly at the microbial level, all kinds of organisms surviving off chemical energy and photosynthesizing off sunlight as well. And if, if you want to look for where there's life, you go to where there used to be plenty of water. That's the logic. It's environments we understand from Earth as well. River systems and deltas, we know how they function on Earth. So we want to see how these functioned on Mars and where the bugs were. Because one of the major reasons for exploring the solar system is to figure out, is there life or was there ever life anywhere else other than Earth? We want to know if we're alone in the universe. Now, finding it on our neighbouring planet won't prove that it's widespread on exoplanets around other stars. But it's a step in that direction. And how did the Perseverance mission go about finding the answers to these questions? Well, it hasn't found the answers yet, but it put a rover down and a little helicopter, which has performed brilliantly. And it, first of all, trundled over the flat floor of the crater and has established that the flat floor of the crater is not lake bed sediments. It's lavas, which is disappointing from the point of view of those looking for life, because sediments on a lake bed would be a really good place to find traces of life. But the papers published this week in uh, in Science Advances are very big on analysing the lavas on, on the crater floor. And below the lavas, there's an intrusive rock, a fairly coarse-grained cumulate rock where crystals have settled out and there's olivine surrounded by pyroxene. So this is an, either a, a thick lava flow which cooled slowly and crystals settled or an intrusion that was injected underneath the lava flows. But history of igneous activity there on the floor of the crater. Now, a, a delta prograded across that crater floor and leaves us the delta we see very prominently in the spacecraft images looking down on Jezero Crater. But that's not the original delta. That's just an erosional remnant. 
most of the Delta rocks have been eroded away. And where have they gone? It's a very good question. Some rocks have been flushed out of the crater. There's an outflow channel going out of the crater. But maybe a lot's been removed by the wind. But the curious thing is, you see the front of this delta, there are some damn big boulders there brought in by torrential floods, you know, metre-sized boulders, potentially. And you can't blow those away in the wind, especially in Mars's very tenuous atmosphere. So there are processes going on that we don't really understand. But what's published this week is the lavas on the floor of the crater were altered by water. So it's clear there was a body of water overlying these lavas and there's been a certain amount of alteration of the original rocks formed by cooling from molten lava being carbonates deposited. And then, and then later on, uh, some salts precipitated from brine, so the water got really salty. So we've got an alteration history, but we haven't yet got samples of the lake bedrocks that might have microbes in them or not as published. The rover is now at the very bottom of the steep face of the delta in amongst some very fine-grained sediments, and that's a chance for finding some fossilised microbes. And I guess there will be caching some specimens for later return to Earth from that very site where they are now. It's good that you mentioned that because it did say that on one of the papers that Perseverance will be collecting up to 38 samples of rock and regolith, regolith being dust that's on top of bedrock. They're planned to be brought back and returned for analysis in Earth laboratories. I wonder if you, if you could shed any light on how they plan on bringing these samples back. One plan, given that the Ingenuity helicopter has functioned so well, is to use a helicopter to go and collect these little bits of samples and bring them back to a central point from where a future mission can return them. But they're probably going to be using the Perseverance rover as well to bring samples to uh, collection points. But Perseverance has a big job to do first. It's going to climb up the front of this delta. It's about 100 metres high to get from the bottom of the delta to the top. I mean, the top continues to slope upwards. It's got quite a traverse to go through to see the whole sequence of delta morphologies. So we're a long way off yet bringing samples back to Earth, but it is collecting samples in collection tubes ready to be retrieved when we've figured out quite how we're going to do it. How optimistic are you that we may find remnants of life, be it alive or in a deep torpor or even you know just a fossilised remnants? And there are organic molecules that have been found. That doesn't mean life. Organic is just carbon, hydrogen bonded together with oxygen and so on. So there's some quite complex molecules in amongst the rocks, but we won't find microbes with this mission, unlikely to anyway. But future missions may have a better chance. I mean, Mars in the past surely had life even if it didn't develop its own life it could have had life carried from earth if a big impact on earth and a rock gets flung out from earth it will have some bugs in it some of those bugs will survive passage to mars and can seed mars either life on earth came from mars or life on mars came from earth so i'm sure mars had things living on it in the deep past at the same time the earth had early microbes present but they're going to be hard to find intriguing stuff the ou's david rothery there In the past, doctors used to prescribe a hot bath for some disorders. But now, in some parts of the country, history is almost repeating itself, with practitioners writing prescriptions for heating for patients with conditions that get worse in the cold. In an initial trial, the warm home prescription pilot paid to heat the homes of 28 low-income patients to avoid the cost of hospital care if they became more ill. 
Those running the trial said it achieved such good results, they plan to expand it to 1,150 homes. So why is heating a wonder drug, and do the figures stack up? Cambridge University physiologist Christoph Schweining knows all about how we keep warm and stay cool. He often puts his knowledge into practice as a highly successful marathon runner. Well, I wondered exactly the same thing just before I came down to meet you. So I did a quick calculation on my uh, trusty spreadsheet. So I looked up a patient in hospital for a single day, at least in A&E, is about £400. And if you assume that you could target the people who you want to have their homes heated appropriately, so maybe you could uh, stop 10% of the emissions. And then you imagine that perhaps if you were to get ill and be in an unheated house and get ill, that you would have a stay of perhaps two weeks or three weeks in hospital, then it's worth at least over the four months of winter paying 100 to maybe 200 pounds a month off a few fuel bill to, to do that. So I think it actually does make uh, sense. I think it all depends on how well you can target this as a treatment. What's the rationale, though, for making people warmer in winter and that reducing their risk of disease? What's the link between being cold and getting health problems? There are so many uh, links going on here. One of the uh, big links which uh, isn't talked about often enough is the effect of, uh, for instance, lying down in bed to stay warm over a prolonged period of time. That's an absolutely massive detraining stimulus. So imagine you've got a, uh, somebody who is uh, ageing and relatively uh, unfit. They've got some underlying disorder as well. If that person detrains as a result of, of lying down, not being exposed to a gravitational field, and also not performing exercise, just routine daily exercise, then they really do risk uh, at the end of a winter period, or at least several weeks on into this uh, bed rest, becoming so unfit that they struggle to deal with any kind of exacerbation of an underlying illness. So this would be people retreating to bed early because it's warmer in bed than it is in the living room? Oh, absolutely. I I know I've just bought an electric blanket. Being in bed is a wonderful thing, but it's awfully a dangerous place to to be, really. Old people are particularly at risk here because the ability to sense your internal temperature, that reduces, and your ability also to control the blood flow to your periphery, really to lock off the blood flow from the periphery to keep it centrally in the well-insulated area. That declines uh, with age. So you've got old people and ill people who've got low maximal rates of aerobic work they've got compromised ability to sense their core temperature and also a compromised ability to restrict the blood flow to maintain the core body temperature all of this adds together into a a scenario where even if you don't have an acute serious illness at the point at which you take to bed you may well end up at the end of a period in a a position where you might need uh, hospital care. The rates of things like heart attacks and strokes also shoot up in winter. Can that be explained on the basis of what we know about how the body handles temperature? Certainly. So there are some uh, really uh, simple acute effects that are well known. Uh, So when you get cold, you uh, peripherally vasoconstrict, so you reduce the blood flow to the periphery. This pushes the blood centrally. uh, And as a result of that, you also get a rise in uh, arterial blood pressure as well and a somewhat of a thickening of the blood, so a hemoconcentration. And all of that places a stress on the heart which, of course, can exacerbate any kind of cardiovascular uh, set of uh, disorders. 
But there is some disagreement here as to exactly what the drivers are. So there are lots of things that go on when the weather gets cold and you take to bed. You you become uh, potentially a little bit depressed, a little bit less likely to uh, exercise, maybe less likely to take care of yourself, to eat appropriately, and indeed to drink as well. Uh, So all of these things add together uh, to produce a cardiovascular stress. Do we see then the countries where it is warmer and warmer in winter, that they don't have this surge in winter mortality? Because that's the thing we see, isn't it? Every winter we see this so-called surge in excess mortality. Now, some of that will be things like the flu, but many argue it is the cold that is killing people. Ah, well, this is this is interesting because you've caught me here on on a, a set of data that I don't have. So I don't know whether the equatorial regions really suffer the same set of problems. But what's certainly true is if you look at different sets of societies, some are certainly much better adapted to cold weather. So if you look at the Scandinavian countries in particular, uh, there the infrastructure is such that the cold weather really doesn't present a problem. We're sort of stuck in the middle that we have winters which are sometimes quite cold and so like the leaves on the line we don't tend to uh, take the necessary set of precautions. You preempted where I was going with that because I was going to say well there are many countries where it is much colder in winter than seven degrees today here in Britain and we're not seeing the sort of surges in mortality that we see here so it must be all relative then. Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, the, the bus stop is a, is a really wonderful uh, example. If you have a public transportation system aimed at a set of individuals who are more likely to be at risk from cold weather, and then you don't have a regular bus service, you risk leaving them sat uh, stationary in cold conditions for a prolonged period of time. And that really then presents a major acute risk. So something as simple as having a regular bus timetable that arrives on time. Uh, We just don't think about that, but things like that can be absolutely critical uh, when looking at uh, the the risk of cold weather. Christoph Schweining on the merits of doctors prescribing heating this winter. No, I've not transported you to a rave. That is an excerpt from a special concert recently performed by Canadian techno duo Orphix. The concert took place at the Live Lab facility at McMaster University in Canada a short while ago. Dan Cameron, postdoctoral research fellow at McMaster, uses this music venue with a difference to pull off some pretty unique research. As well as being a neuroscientist, Dan is a keen drummer. He's interested in the way music makes us want to dance, something of an evolutionary curiosity. The Live Lab hosts genuine concerts and is equipped with microphones and speakers designed to be able to change the acoustics of the concert on a whim. They can measure brain activity from the audience members and the performers there using small sensors attached to their heads and also have motion capture technology to measure their movements. I asked what all this tech was teaching us about techno. So I've always been interested in rhythm and what types of rhythms make us feel this strong sense of a beat that we can synchronize our movements to. But there's been another component, and that's the bass, the low frequencies in music. We know from anecdotal reports that people who who like to go to electronic dance music concerts, they feel immersed in the bass. It affects their body. It feels good. It makes them want to dance. And we know from experimental work that there are associations between bass or low frequencies and movement and movement timing in particular. But kind of in the same way that with, you know, a medical drug, 
you need to test not just if it affects the, the body or the tissue in the way that you expect, but is there a clinically relevant effect? Does it actually change people's outcomes and lives? We didn't know if there's a real world effect. Now, for this study, what we did is we were having a concert from the electronic music duo called Orfix, and people were paying to come. They were buying tickets, and we thought we can do an experiment here as well on bass and movement. So we asked people if they wanted to volunteer for this experiment, and all they needed to do was put a really simple headband on their head that had a, a motion capture sensor on it. And then they went and enjoyed the concert, and they danced. And the thing we did to test whether bass affects their dancing is we had these specialized speakers, these very low-frequency speakers that play bass frequencies that are so low, most speakers are, are not able to play these, and they're not generally part of the musical experience. We needed people to be unaware of when we were turning these speakers on and off. When they were on, they were at a, a pretty subtle level. And we had a couple pieces of evidence afterward that really did indicate to us that people couldn't detect when these, these extra low frequencies were on. What we found was that by using motion capture, we could track everyone's movements. When the, the very low frequencies were present, when those speakers were on, people danced about 12% more than when they were off. And what do you attribute that increased danceability of the music to, even if it can't be audibly heard? So this is speculation because we didn't test these mechanisms, but we have an idea from other work that's out there. And we think that it's not just the auditory system, our hearing, that processes the music, and especially these low frequencies, but we think that our tactile system, our sense of touch, and our vestibular system, our inner ear, the, the part of our body and sensory system that, that processes our sense of balance and where we are in space. We know that low frequencies, if they're sufficiently loud, can stimulate the mechanoreceptors on our skin and in our body. So if you've been to a concert, you stand very close to a loudspeaker, you can feel it kind of rattling in your chest maybe or on your skin. That's the sound vibrations, the vibrations in the air are stimulating our sense of touch. And we know that our vestibular system is also important in rhythm perception generally, music perception, and our sense of moving in time with music. We can change people's perception by having their vestibular system stimulated at a particular rate, like if they bounce along to, to music, that'll change how they hear that music later. But both of those systems, our sense of touch and our sense of balance, are strongly connected in the brain to our motor system, the, the parts of the brain that control our ability to move and to control our movements. How did you account for the fact that music naturally has these sort of peaks and troughs, parts of the song that are naturally going to encourage more of an energetic response and parts where listeners are invited to catch their breath, perhaps. How do you know that these parts of the music didn't line up necessarily with when you were using these low-frequency bass sounds that people can't actually hear? We can't control for that perfectly because this was an ecologically valid, a kind of real world experiment. It was a concert. The, the musicians were performing. People were there enjoying it and dancing. But what we could do is spread out these periods where the speakers were on, the extra low frequency speakers. We would turn them on for two and a half minutes. Then we would turn them off for two and a half minutes. On for two and a half minutes. Off for two and a half minutes. So you saw what you describe as fairly unanimous results across the participants and you mentioned that there's a 12 percent increase in movement is that would you argue pretty significant or will we need more of these types of studies to gauge what your numbers really mean it's hard for me to say what what, what the answer to that is we were surprised and pleased at how robust the effect was how reliable it was overall but is there a facilitatory effect of the of the low frequency um, stimulation that we provided 
does that increase the social cohesion effects as well? Can we see that? Um, and how does that change? But yeah, absolutely. We want to, you know, we want to see the future research that builds from this and connects to this to better understand how this works in the real world. Dan Cameron from McMaster University, that paper detailing the study was recently out in Current Biology. Next time, we'll be picking apart the practice of personality testing. Increasingly, the suitability of a given person for a particular role might at least partly be evaluated by their response to questions with seemingly no wrong answer. But is this a fair and sensible way to give someone a job? The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute for Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. Thanks very much for listening. I'm James Titko, and until next time, goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.